Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. At my parents' house, you can see uh, with the new accessories behind me, I'm in the spare room recording this pod. Yeah, and I got my plants back. So those of you who are watching the live stream or the YouTube video, you can see me in my little jungle, which I'm slowly curating as it is quickly approaching plant growing season. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, dude. So I we actually have a bonsai tree just like that one in our apartment too. And dude, those things rage. Like you can see there's yeah, they, a, a brand new uh, leaf just boop, mm-hmm. popped right up. Yep, straight up. Yeah, the money, tree, money trees go really, really fast. Faster than the price of Ether and the price of Bitcoin sometimes. <laughs> Too bad you can't just use them to print. <laughs> it's like, some, well, somebody can. Speaking of printing money, stock market's on an absolute tear. Yeah. Should we summarize what we're going to talk about in this episode before we start talking about it? No, why not? Well, let's just surprise them. But the stock market is on a tear. It's insane. Like, the level, the, the discrepancy between stock market prices and what is happening in reality could not be further. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yeah. And and the stock market isn't the economy, but I feel like the separation between those two things is like a measure of systemic risk. Like the more that the stock market doesn't reflect the actual economy of the of a country, the more systemic risk there is. And I don't really know how to like back up that statement, but I feel like that's that's true. I feel like that's a, a valid thing to say. We are we are at October twenty nineteen levels in terms of S and P price. Um, I'm not doing what I was doing well, in October I mean, twenty nineteen. Yeah, I, no, I was my partying. Cre- my credit or my spending was way down. Yeah, my my spending was four X, and that's aggressively yeah. sat sat stacking, and that's still spending so much more money. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I mean, so many, plenty of companies are at all-time highs. Yeah, we were just it's talking about Amazon insane. stock. <laughs> COVID yeah. was just a little blip. But not just. Yeah, yeah. It looks like just a. a it looks like it's just a little period of extra volatility on this just massive bull run that continues to this day. I have a little cousin. He's thirteen, and he was just pitching me oil stocks and all this stuff yesterday. And he's like, dude, we're on a bull run. Don't worry. It's good. It, this is like the longest bull run. It's going to keep going. And I was just like. The bull run Lindy effect. I, I think trading apps are at an all-time high right now. Oh, my God. Dude. Imagine if Robinhood was publicly traded and all the Robinhood people would be buying the Robinhood stock. That would be insane. I mean. Anyways, the, the Fed continues to print money. So well, I, guess, I guess that's just, if you look at it from that point of view, I think it, it, you could just make sense. So how has, how has like this like activity from the Fed kind of like woken you up as, as an individual? Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to say because I, don't, I can't really remember how I thought differently three, four months ago or whatever. Um, but I think maybe I have had like a newfound appreciation for, for Bitcoin and for those narratives and, and for, um, you know, all, all the things that Bitcoiners speak of and why Bitcoiners are the way that they are. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, social scalability, which is a concept that we're going to go into this, into, um, in this, in this podcast and how, the federal government because the the main line 
that everyone has been spitting out, no matter what podcast you listen to, is that money has just become politicized, right? Like we've talked about this on POV Crypto. I've talked about it on Bankless. Other people have talked about it on crypto and non-crypto podcasts. Like that's really the thing that everyone is talking about, regardless of what background you're, you're coming from. If you have any sense, you realize that money has just become a political tool extremely saliently, which is the thing that Bitcoiners have been saying all along. And now like this coronavirus has just perfectly instantiated it into people's brains to be able to comprehend what that actually means and looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think not just you, but a lot of people are kind of like waking up to that. A lot of people that I would consider normies, so definitely educated, like not, you know, not people who are kind of like out of it, but just, you know, normie type people are definitely awake to like, whoa, there's something like unintuitive mm-hmm. about this. Like, how can they just make yeah. money? Mm-hmm. And we see these like fundamental fundamentals change, right? Like, so by by Ether, by Bitcoin, like e- even by Ether and like e- Ethereum and Ether is not really the the cryptocurrency that you would associate with you know, depoliticize money, right? Like if, if that's just not what you would associate it with, but regardless, like the ETH hub traffic is like, is super high by ether on Google is really high. And we all know that by Bitcoin and Bitcoin related search terms on Google are already super high. Like Nick Carter tweeted out, like it, he said something along the lines of ask any exchange operator. There's been like this massive new influx of enthusiasm around Bitcoin. Like the the fundamentals for this this industry, Bitcoin in particular, is just insane right now. Yeah, Zach Vol was tweeting that he's shorting Bitcoin like two hours ago. Though I just like looked at it, I was like, oh man, why would he do this? I don't know. Why would you ever short any cryptocurrency? I mean, a lot of people made money shorting Ether outside of 2008 or after 2008. Yeah. But still, like, the whole the whole concept of, like, just have 1% of Bitcoin in your portfolio because the returns are asymmetric means that equally and oppositely, shorting any crypto is fucking stupid. Like, the, the returns are also not, are also totally asymmetric, but the opposite way. Yeah. I would say, like, shorting pretty much means that you don't think it's a bull run because no one would short if they think it's a bull run. I mean, unless they're they think they're that good of a trader that they can go in and out. But uh, right. like, no, right. there's no medium term shorts um, unless you think like we're going into a bear bear market. So maybe he thinks that the stock market is going to crash and everything else is going to go down with it. Who knows? Yeah. So shorting in an obvious bear market is is a different story yeah like shorting past I, I december wanna, 2017 talk about the stock market different. a little bit more actually. yeah let's do it let's go back so like the the cantillion or cantillon effect cantillon yeah whatever cantillion whatever that effect where for those that aren't familiar the cantillion cantillon effect is the the concept of like when money is printed that money goes into the hands of people and those people have the ability to spend that money at a price that is not reflected by the overall market because you know inflation is a price adjustment of money like globally, but people that receive new money get to spend it before the others. Um, but I, I also think that's to- not totally all-encompassing definition of why we're concerned with money printing because it's not just a factor of like uh, front uh, front running inflation, but it's also just like now now money is politicized and it goes into the hands of of 
people with connections rather than people who need it. But like so, well, so the, I guess there's two things that are being talked about, right? One is uh, talking about the inherent unfairness of the Cantillon effect, which is strictly those closest to the money printer, those closest to the money printer get to spend that money first and get the benefit of the money without feeling the the, the cost of uh, you know increased supply. On the other side is how is that money actually distributed? Who decides mm-hmm. who gets the money, the the fruits of the money printer? And then that's what you're talking about is the political process that is um, making that decision right now. Right. Yes, exactly. And I think if, if we are on this very long, slow path to like dollar hyperinflation, which I mean, maybe some people think that's crazy, but I think you can you can at least say that it's on the table. That, that there there is a version of the universe in front of us where like the dollar hyperinflates because the Fred printed too much money and that starts in like two years or five years or some some future time like that. Uh, People have been predicting that, it for a while, right? If that like and the 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 fact that deflation is happening right now, like dollar demand is happening, is only temporary and transient, right? And so like if we print enough dollars to satisfy demand today we might have super duper overshot how much how many dollars are needed tomorrow right Most and that's just the beginning of that's Most just the beginning of hyperinflation right <laughs> and so like if if we are witnessing the cantillion effect the cantillon effect and we are witnessing like the rumblings of hyperinflation what would happen in, first and foremost if the idea is that like market participants are going to front run inflation they're going to fucking pump the stock market which is going to result in a v-shaped recovery which is exactly what we have seen the, the inflation shows up in the stock market first and foremost and that's why we've seen insane returns over the last seven since like the 70s or whatever and and stagnant returns everywhere else like the first step to global dollar hyperinflation is like a stock market pump am, am i am i crazy or am i thinking clearly no, I think it makes sense. Uh, I have not read this book, but there's a lot of accounts that kind of talk about it. Gosh, I'm even I'm forgetting the exact name of the book, but the book describes um, it describes the the hyperinflation in Germany after they lost World War One, um, and mm-hmm. it, it talks about how the German people were just looking at French and uh, English equities and assets and thinking that they were appreciating a shitload. They didn't realize that no, it wasn't that they were appreciating a shitload. Is that your your currency, the Deutsche Mark or whatever it was, is was in hyperinflating. So that's why all the assets look like they were appreciating tremendously. So that's what's happening right now. We're looking at all the assets appreciating tremendously, and people are like, "Oh man, the stock market is pumping," but we're actually just living through um, our currency being devalued. It reminds me of that one comic of like or that one like fable or story or whatever you want to call it there's two kid fish swimming in a, in one direction and then an old grandpa fish swimming in the opposite direction and the grandpa fish says to the kid fish hey kids how is the water today and then he swims on and then and then the next frame is one kid fish talking to the other kid fish what the fuck is water and so like when it, you're you don't notice your dollar the dollar changing value like not in not immediately, not in relation to other things, because you're used to other things changing in price around the dollar. 
but like all of a sudden like if if the hyperinflation thesis plays out like you're not going to see it coming by paying attention to the dollar you're going to see it coming by paying attention to everything around the dollar going up and go number those numbers going up yeah it's interesting because in the in like real asset prices like real things that you need to buy right now those are all experiencing deflation but in i guess more liquid assets things that can trade easily that don't have issues like real estate or um, even supplies of shipping them around things that are kind of you know ethereal and on the internet we're seeing the hype the inflation reflected in prices immediately so i mean maybe we don't even maybe we continue to feel deflation in like real goods as long as coronavirus lockdown is a thing but as soon as coronavirus lockdown is not a thing and the velocity of money increases maybe that's when we start seeing the the hyperinflation in or the inflation in in real life 100 percent. and i think this was balaji on pomp's podcast which i too i unsubscribed to the pomp podcast because i basically couldn't handle pomp for a while and that was like six to nine months ago and i just started tuning in and i just binged pomp this weekend he has upped his podcast game they are fantastic yeah uh, i have and- to give pomp credit to uh I think Pomp has won the past uh, the past three months in terms of all podcasters. Really? Pomp has won. Really? Yeah. yeah. So look at his YouTube. Balaji on. Yeah, it, it's, it looks good. It looks guests good. and his guests too. Um, He's killing it. Yeah. Uh, Balaji on the Pomp podcast was talking about how there's going to be deflation in things that we want and inflation in things that we don't want. Uh, and that just makes way too much sense. But that's also kind of just like not necessarily the appropriate use of the terms inflation and deflation. Might maybe a more like price elasticity is the right way to do it, uh, the right way to call it. So but, um, Ansel Lindner talks it, about this very, very literally. He takes the terms very, very little, literal. And I think that's the appropriate way to do it. I think a lot of people use it as like slang now. But technically, the definition of infl- of inflation is money creation. And technically, the definition of deflation is money destruction. The resulting price action, typically with inflation, prices go up. Typically, with def- deflation, prices go down. That has colloquially also been referred to as deflation and inflation. But it's actually just a reaction to the activity of money destruction or creation. Yeah, and I am a big fan of people uh, making sure they're being precise in their speech. Uh, so I am so unlike me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hunter, my roommate, will will get on me about that whenever I be uh, whenever I act. Um, what's the word? Hy- hyperbolic. Uh, well, it'll turn into a semantics debate ultimately. But yeah, can do being that. precise in your yeah, being precise in your speech is important. Um, anyways. Shall we move on? Sure. Uh, TBTC or Rye? So let's just give a quick rundown of like what we know of TBTC, and then let's jump to mm-hmm. Rye. Um, but I guess I, I'll start. TBTC was an attempt to do trustless Bitcoin tokens on Ethereum. It still is. It still is. But their first attempt at going live uh, seemed to have uh, failed because of due to a bug that was discovered, and they, they shut it down pretty much. Is that correct? But uh, yeah, that's that's my understanding. I think well. it effectively lasted for for three days. Personally, mm-hmm. I like. I think that's like. I don't think that this is a bad thing. Like, this is going live on chain is uh, risky business and permanent. So um, the fact that uh, you know something went wrong, they took it down, and 
are trying to figure it out is is not a bad thing. They don't have to be perfect. But I think David definitely has yeah. a lot more details. Uh, not really, actually. That's about it. I just I just know that they kicked out the date that they were going to go live because they discovered a griefing attack. What's that? And then they solved that. What's a, a griefing, griefing attack, attack is like. Um, when I, when they're, when it basically costs me next to nothing to be super duper annoying to you, like I can't take your funds or cause you to lose all your money, but I can just prevent you from accessing your money by being really annoying. And so I don't really necessarily get anything out of it, but I can grief attack you by like making a transaction that prevents you from making your transaction that prevents you from withdrawing your funds. So I don't get anything out of it. I can just be really annoying. Gotcha. Um, that makes the so griefing so, yeah. attack is uh, adequately or appropriately named then. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they fixed that and then they deployed it. And then there's this brand new, new bug that they pressed the big red button. And so Matt, Ma- Matt Longo, uh, Luongo, I think, uh, total bitcoiner in the sense that like he's in he loves ethereum the technology and then bitcoin the asset and doesn't think that ethereum is a monetary platform it's a technological platform and bitcoin is the money the money platform which is like a fair a fair thing to to say but i think that if you say that ethereum is only a technology platform then you're missing the point but that's a different subject um he's he they coded into the TBTC protocol like a big red eject button, and they and they only give themselves the privilege of pressing it once, right? So like in ten, they pressed it about a day ago, and so now in in ten days later, the TBTC contract sp- spins up and running again. But now no one is going to use it because they know of the bug, and so they're all going to withdraw and and do it again. And I'd, I'm assuming they're also going to keep in the big red button again the second time. But the idea is that the team that deployed TBTC has one and one only opportunity to fuck with the contract, which is very, very Bitcoiner of him. I think it's kind of, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So I was going to say like, that's interesting. What do you think of that as a method um, for other contracts saying like, Hey, we understand that one central team is working on this. We get one parachute and then you as a community can decide whether or not to abandon the contract or not. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, uh, and that goes on, in line with like what they're going to do with TBTC version 2. And this is also how Uniswap works, right? So like Uniswap V2 just got released on mainnet today. And there's nothing that the Uniswap team can do to actually, actually like take people's systems and move it over to the new system. They just have to like ask pretty please, will you do this? And that's what Matt Luongo said they're going to do with TBTC version two. It's like, yeah, we're going to push version one onto chain, collect a bunch of data, get a bunch of, you know, see live tests. And then we're going to write version two. And then we're going to say, hey, pretty please, can you migrate? But like, we're not going to force anyone because they want that TBTC to be as socially scalable as possible. And so like the big red button that puts a pause on anything for 10 days is like just the minimal amount of governance that you could ever have ever and still have governance. Like it's, it's, it's almost zero governance, but not quite zero. And that's done with a very like Bitcoin or centric like frame of mind, in my opinion. I mean, this is kind of a good place to move over to social scalability. Should we talk about Rye or? 
Um, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Rye, and then and then we'll talk about why social scalability is important for like the bulk of the rest of the remainder of the episode. Wait, so real quick, just to find social scalability, we're going to be talking about this, especially mm-hmm. about uh, sure. stuff that, uh, especially with stuff uh, regarding Nick Zabo. But um, why don't you give uh, a quick hint, and then we can talk about Rye. Yeah, so I'll give my definition of social scalability because I don't think that. I can actually give like a formalized definition of one that the way Nick Zabo does or other people do. Um, but mine's just as good. I think, um, social scalability is the concept of how far something can scale socially, uh, a system or, or something that we all rely on, how many people can rely on it before that thing starts to break down. And if not very many people can rely on it, then it's not very socially scalable. Uh, the internet is perhaps the most socially scalable thing that we have seen ever uh, for it's because it's the same internet across the globe everywhere. Uh, money itself is a pretty decently socially scalable system. I would say gold uh, when in the, the peak of gold times, whenever that was, you know, 2000 years ago, I don't know whenever gold had its heyday, but like that was perhaps the most socially scalable thing that we ever had at that time. Like it was ubiquitous across the globe. It was ubiquitously valuable. You could exchange it, saleable, et cetera. It was money for that time. And that gold as a system was very socially scalable because it had no governance, right? There was no governors of gold. There was no, it was just God and physics, right? That decided that how much gold and where it was. Uh, And so like, It seems to be, and like, you could also say that democracy and like a democratic nation state had more social scalability than something like uh, the USSR or, um, or any sort of totalitarian government. Totalitarianism doesn't seem to have too much social scalability because not very many people can depend on it without it breaking down. Um, So there's these different protocols and they're all, the whole concept is like an organizational scheme. Like these things that humans can rally and rally behind and use, and maybe something closer to like public infrastructure. Like, how scalable is this public infrastructure before too many people pile on and and break it down? Um, and it seems to be that governance is a limiter on social scalability, um, or at least tends to be if it can't be designed right. Nick Zabo thinks that it's impossible. He says that the most important and hardest part of trust minimization is governance minimization. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, is do, do you have to ask is, like, if you introduce governance, if you have this super, super duper scalable thing that's way scalable beyond our wildest dreams, and then you implement a little bit of governance, does that invalidate the whole thing? Or is it just still pretty decently scalable to the point where its effectiveness is the same. Each system, I think, will have its own answer for that. Yeah. Um, it's going to be yeah. an iterative process to find, like, what is minimal viable governance, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And this, this is, like, Bitcoiners' biggest qualms with Ethereum, right? Because hard forks require governance, and governance isn't socially scalable. Yeah. Like, that's, the, like, the, one of the centerpieces of this whole debate. Governance slash coordination. Right. Um, so that brings us to Rye. Yeah. So uh, why don't you explain what's Rye and what, like, why was Rye created? Okay. So Amin Soleimani, uh, past guests of the episode of, of the pod, and also this one other guy who I didn't know before. Uh, I, shout I out to Ryan Calder, by the way. Yeah. Shout Thanks out for to the Ryan. love, man. Um, 
uh, hold on. This this guy who's Amin's buddy deserves a shout out. Um, Stefan Lonescu. Stefan Lonescu. Sorry if I'm butchering your last name. He, Hanging and Amin wrote this white paper for Rye, which is way back when MakerDAO started implementing um, like non-native crypto assets like WBTC and USDC. And there became this conversation on Ethereum of like, how do we retain purity in our DAI? Like, how do we make sure that DAI isn't backed by like United States treasuries and real estate and things that can be seized outside of the MakerDAO protocol um, for viable and legitimate reasons? Um, I'm not... I personally didn't think that those concerns were as big as they really were, but regardless, we now have this alternative called Rye, which is supposed to be this like purity die. Um, it's not a stable coin. I guess you could call it a stable coin because it is stable-er, but it's not a one-to-one peg with anything. It's not pegged. It's like a stable-ish coin. But ba- And I think this model works for like any asset that has any volatility. So like you can you can just copy and paste this system to any asset and it works the same but basically it's the the asset itself put into this rye contract and then it becomes stable ish in reference to itself um and so you could have ether backed rye that is ether denominated ether collateralized but it's stable ish uh and so the whole point of this is that there are there is no governance over the system there well there, there is but there is in the same way that like tbtc has governance where like there are some there are some very limited controls that do some very limited things and uh opting out of of the negative impacts of government governance in the system is extremely easy so it's not only um pure die in the sense that it's pure ether denominated pure ether backed but it's also pure in governance form so there's no like maker dao voting system which I think is really, could be really, really important. That could be a huge piece of infrastructure for Ethereum. So it's more of like a difficulty, like Bitcoin-style difficulty adjustment type thing where it's just adjusting a stability fee or whatever based on a price feed. Did they talk about how the price feed yes. works? Uh, I link? have not gone into Question the white mark? paper. <laughs> no, that would not be considered part of purity, uh, deep governance-free die. Uh, yeah, something something like that. And like, I mean, way back when, um, he said something along the lines of, and this was back in 2017. So this is super duper. David's a new crypto person, but I'm still super proud of myself for latching onto this concept early. Was uh, um, thanks to Amin because he said it um, was the concept of no magic numbers, and so like you need a crypto economic system that is totally autonomous and fair and, and self-sustaining and governance-free shouldn't have any magic numbers in it. Whereas like a magic number is something that's just pulled out of thin air. And so like the difficulty adjustment for Bitcoin is a great example of a system that doesn't use a magic number. Like it is uh, determined by the market. It's market forces determine what the number is. And that's why I really like the balance between proof of stake issuance and EIP 1559 ether burn, because like the more ether is burned, then it increases the return of Ether staking. So then there's more Ether staking, which increases the Ether issuance, which means that there can be more economic activity on Ethereum, which increases the Ether burn. So we find this like equilibrium, right? And nowhere is there anywhere like at this magic number that dictates how much Ether should be burnt or how much Ether should be issued. Like it's de- it's determined by market forces. And that's that's definitely a p- component of this RDI, or excuse me, uh, this RI system. I think like the fact that there's like 
engineering and tinkering to find like the right amount of security and the right amount of issuance is just i think that's where uh things start to move away from what you're describing as like this beautiful Mm. market-based system because i don't think that that's actually going to be allowed to happen i think that there's going to continue to be like oh we need to figure this out or we need to do this or oh this is not enough security or whatever um but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested to see this. Like, this is this is just more popcorn for me. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I think that things that are happening in this department is interesting, and I, you know, we discussed a similar ish structure um, to like why can't you know die be or why can't make or die just be ether and without the governance. So it's very cool to see it actually happening in real life. My thing that I'm kind of concerned about is. Like how how tightly to a dollar is this system going to be able to keep Rye? Um, and if Rye is a completely different like unit of account per se, it's a completely different unit that they have to bootstrap. How are they going to bootstrap liquidity around it? Because that is a that's a massive challenge. Like that is no easy feat. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think it's pegged to the dollar. I don't think it's 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 a it's a stable it's a stable ish coin. But only the stability reference point is the it's a self-referential system. So like the 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 there doesn't need to be an oracle. Is also something that's really cool about this. There's no external reference point. The reference point is itself. And so what what Rye does is it takes an asset, and then the asset is volatile, and then Rye is volatile in the same direction, um, but less so than the asset itself. And so it is like it's like ether, but stable. So it's so like it's like hedged I don't know how that ether. Works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hedged ether. I'm very interested to see how they can uh, how they can solve they the can million dollar question of you know getting the perfect allocation in order <laughs> to make this useful. But I mean, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Again, like this is, I feel like that's what something that people in the DeFi space don't appreciate is like. The act of doing some of these things, the act of creating these uh, baskets and formulas and whatever to achieve the stability that you want is close to an impossible task. Well, that's actually kind of why I like it. It's not perfectly stable. Like it's it's allowed because we've seen Dai be not perfectly stable, likely for the same economic forces that like would impact Rai. And I think Rai is just like where Dai is trying to be like, Every single buy purchase needs to be uh, below a dollar, and every needs every single sell of die needs to be slightly above a dollar, and that's how we achieve the a perfect peg. Rye is more like, fuck it, there are market forces, and die's not going to get the peg right, and so we're not even going to try. We're just going to allow market forces to push the stable asset around some central point, but not really get close, but still be close enough for people to leverage stability rather than um, perfect stability. Like, you still get stability. It's just not perfect. I don't even know what that stability definition means. And, like, how... Again, we'll see. Like, this is, it, this thing mm-hmm. just launched today. So, like, we're already jumping not, on not it. Not even. It was the yeah. white paper released. Yeah, today. yeah, white paper released today. So we're already jumping on it and judging it. And it, there's really has not been... <laughs> nothing has come to fruition yet. So we'll see. What do we want to talk about? Anything else? We I mean we kind of front ran uh, social scalability. You want to get back like so? I think some of the impetus to Rye is the fact that all this collateral that was being added through Dai um, gov- or MakerDAO governance 
um, wasn't rubbing well with people. People didn't like the governance made, you know, is starting to hit the boundaries of the social scalability of the system. It seems at least within the Ethereum community. Mm-hmm. Um, what, like what, how, what, what do you think of when you think of like the concept of social scalability and then what we're seeing, um, in the Ethereum community? Yes. So before we were recording, we were talking about, or maybe it was during recording, you were talking about how like governance limits social scalability no matter what. And like, I'm sure that's true to some degree. Um, but at the same time, like imagine like the, the United States democracy, the United, this, the United States political or governance system. I should really call it a governance system. It's not a political system. Politics is what happens when there is governance. Politics is like jostling for position, right? Jostling for influence where governance is actual the, actually the protocol. Yeah. Um, Politics is playing so, the governance game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so like, but regardless, the protocol of the United States of America has been an extremely socially scalable system comparison to other systems that we had prior, which are like um, what other organizational schemes that we've had, like monarchs or religion, re- scalability, social scalability through religion, any sort of like system of organizing people around. And so like g- governance was actually introduced into America and taken and and that replaced the role of a monarch right and that that introduction of governance actually did increase social scalability and so and i'm not i still think that like maximum social scalability is found in in hard protocols like the internet that don't change under people's feet uh but uh when you have something like maker dao governance right like maker dao governance is governance but it's not in the same realm as governance over like the United States of America, where like governance over the United States of America can dictate things like it's illegal to have an abortion or it's illegal to drink alcohol or it's, it's illegal to live your life uh, or doing your things like that. That is the limitations of social scalability of the U S government. The maker Dow protocol has no ability whatsoever to ever do anything like that. The, the, realms of what MakerDAO governance can control is extremely limited. And the rest of that is given to DAI and given the DAI the freedom to do as it sees fit. And so like MakerDAO governance will never, ever prevent DAI from being paid for black market cocaine or, or something like that. And so like to that degree, like there is governance, but also the system itself is decently ungovernable and, and socially scalable in that manner. Gotcha. But I mean, I guess what, what would you characterize what's happening now? And the, you know, the defiance to decisions made by make or doubt governance. The, the defiance. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't say there's any defiance going on. Gotcha. So what do you consider so the, 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 the people that are like voicing their con- well, I don't think there is one. That's the thing. Um, and I think it was Nick Carter who was talking about this on his podcast. And this was in reference to the Hazu article that came out about how the future of monetary policy is discretionary, which was a fantastic article. Um, he talked he said that he's perhaps generally bearish on the ability to have a stable coin, a, a dollar peg stable coin that doesn't have some sort of like, some sort of governance process over it. Uh, it. It might just be inherent to how stability comes to the system. There might be there might be human involvement along with stability. 
I think that might, there might be a commitment there. Um, and so like the pushback against the maker team or the choices of the maker protocol or the maker governors, I think has actually largely come from um, people without skin in the game on Twitter, just making really easy tweets. Um, I think people with MKR are the governors of the system are obviously more in tuned with what governance of MakerDAO means and why we need assets like, you know, off-chain property bonds, you know, whatever Bitcoin into MakerDAO. I don't, I don't, I think the pushback is from people who don't hold MKR, not from the ones that do hold MKR. Again, we'll, we'll see how the experiment plays out. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about Nick and maybe even Hasu's article? Um, I read Nick's a while ago. I did read Hasu's article after you sent it to me, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with him. Yeah, let's talk about Hasu's article. Um, since you read it most recently, you want to give like a recap of it? So the whole idea is that we are starting to see a lot of experimentation on you know non- country-based central banking, right? And MakerDAO is kind of one of the first um, experiments in that department where, you know, essentially you're, this is an organization that is, you know, operating on the internet that is creating central banking and producing a currency called DAI. And it's currently trying to stay stable with the dollar, but, you know, that policy can be used in a lot of different ways. And he thinks that this is just the beginning and that, uh, the future is going to be riddled with, you know, different organizations, whether they be countries or other, um, trying to central bank their ways into more competitive, stable-ish, optimal currencies. Um, so, I mean, I, I can agree that these experiments will continue to happen. I have no doubt about that. Are they going to be able to compete? I don't know. I think the I, I, maybe I'm just completely biased to the ideas of sound money at this point, but I just think that that's so optimal like why why would someone go for something else well i think you can say like there is room for discretionary stable coins and sound money like there those things don't really compete too much so i d- kind of disagree short, no because i think the reason why you see stable coins are helpful now is because the dollar is the most liquid currency but i don't think that something that's not the dollar that is trying to be a stable coin is going to make any headway like, look Wait, at what? even pegged euros, and who, no one gives a shit about them. Oh, I see. You know, like, the the, the reason stablecoin matter is because it's pegged to the dollar. If it's not pegged right. to the dollar in some manner, then it's going to be irrelevant. The bootstrapping liquidity around that unit is going to be very, very difficult, and it's just not going to compete with Bitcoin. Well, the dollar is, is valued itself is is valued globally for for many reasons separate from stability but one of them is stability like stability is found in the dollar and therefore it can be found in stable coins people say that but personally i think that it's valued strictly because it's the most liquid product well no because like how many people are impacted by like the lack of liquidity of of whatever their asset is money like, is, is product has liquidity that's all it is Stability is organizing around whatever the basis of the most liquid good is. Stability itself is subjective. Right. Yeah. I would say that money is a product and uh, the idea of stability is a common belief, not the other way around. Is it, okay. The idea of stability is a shared illusion around the product that is money. 
Around you mean the current instantiation of the of what money the is product today, whatever the, the most liquid good is. Okay, I've started to lose the thread of this conversation. <laughs> All right, whatever the dollar is, the, re- <laughs> the people don't want the dollar because it's stable. They want it because it's liquid. Money is the most liquid good. Right. Okay. So you're saying that like Hazu's article, which is about the future of discretionary monetary policy, discretionary meaning active management over something to promote stability is limited because when you have something like Bitcoin that could potentially one day match the dollar's liquidity, saleability, et cetera, then then what's the point of discretionary monetary policy? Is that what you're saying? What are they going to be discretionary about? Are they going to be discretionary about trying to maintain a peg to the dollar? Because yes, if that's the case, then okay, sure, whatever. You can compete to to maintain the peg to a dollar, but if they're being discretionary about creating a stable currency that is going to be mm. liquid, it's not going to fucking happen. It's too late. That ship has sailed. It's the dollar or Bitcoin at this point. Maybe gold, but even gold, I don't. It's like not even gold's not that liquid from a money sense. Gold is liquid yeah, gold, from gold. maybe like a store of value sense. Yeah, gold, gold's old news. Gold's, gold's not cool. I don't know why crypto people are all all in love with gold. It makes no sense. Well, gold sound money, so it was it was the most sound liquid good. You gotta believe in crypto. You gotta believe. You gotta you gotta believe in it. It's gonna. People say that like crypto, like Bitcoin, is like an option uh, an option on a future version of gold. I feel like it's already here. I, I feel like that that option has been taken. So when you read when you read Hazi's article, what is your interpretation? Because mm-hmm. my interpretation is he's saying that there will be central banks or organizations acting in central monetary policy and whatever that looks like that will create monetary products that can compete to become the most liquid good or it can be mm-hmm. at least in the realm where it's useful, where its liquidity is yeah. useful. That's what, what I take I it. see. What I see when I read Hauser's article is that stability can be made into a product and different, there will be different ways at producing that product and different, different, and the central bank is included in this fight. It's the MakerDAO central bank versus the actual central bank, the Fed versus Tether. Like all these people are, have these discretionary monetary policies that they're going to implement. Um, to offer stability as a product to, to whatever offer a dollar peg. Do, well, the dollar, no stability offered by a dollar peg. First and foremost is stability. This, the dollar peg is a means to an end to produce stability as a product. And that, that's what die is. Die is stability as a product. Um, doesn't need the dollar to do that. And that's kind of what this, this rye thing is doing. It's stability as a product. It's just, not not a dollar peg. It's just a different kind of stability. Yeah, but, but I, that, stability that's what, I, without I to, liquidity, it does not create a money. Yes, but the demand for that same stable product that everyone else is using does create liquidity. Everyone else using it is because it's already liquid. You can't you can't jump to everyone else using it without it being liquid. There, well, there's so a like crazy catch twenty two here. Die, die on Ethereum is is super duper liquid for yeah. its market cap no no totally and and that that's why i'm bearish on rye as a unit if it's not going to be a dollar and it's not already as liquid as die like what is gonna like people aren't people aren't like gonna be like i'm looking for this stable thing 
They're saying, I'm looking for this thing that's like a dollar that's also liquid. Right. Um, like people, like this idea of stable value that is not pegged to something they recognize as a unit and, and on top of that is not a liquid product. That means it's you can easily get it. You can easily move large amounts into it. Like that, no one wants that. No one wants in the liquid, stable thing that's not pegged to something that they want. But there's, I need to read the Rye White Paper, but I bet you there's a decent chance that like the whatever the the liquidity of the asset that underpins the Rye system, like you have the Rye version of Ether, borrows its liquidity from Ether, not from its own its own liquidity network. I bet that that I bet that is, is somewhat true because you have to deposit Ether sure. to to produce Rye. Um, anyways, I think I think we're fraying this conversation at the moment. I wasn't talking specifically about Rye. I was talking about specific, more generally about um, attempts at creating a stabilized mm-hmm. currency that may not be pegged to the dollar. I just think that mm-hmm. that is not going to be a fruitful endeavor. Like, if people want to compete to peg to a dollar, then maybe they can compete. But even still, it'll be like a Pareto distribution. But mm-hmm. trying to create something that's not pegged to the dollar, that is has some sort of central planning or active monetary policy around it, I just don't think it's going to work. Yeah, that's, that's always why I've really enjoyed the fact that DAI in its roadmap originally, it seems to have less less emphasis today, but originally had like this... Um, plan to generate their own monetary policy and remove the die peg from a dollar to something else. But in the same way that like Bitcoin isn't ready to be the world's currency, die isn't also ready to become its own new currency. Um, it's just well, at some point it'll create its own liquidity network inside of Ethereum. And then once it's sufficiently large, we can like break away and be like, we're doing our own thing. And because we're big enough, we get to do that. Like that's always been my plan. And then, and then again, like Dai is not a dollar; it is stability. It is like the instantiation of stability versus for Ethereum, like Ethereum's version of stability. We'll see, man. We'll see. Like I think Parker Lewis put the exactly do you know do pull the bait and switch on the dollar, like the dollar pulled the bait and switch on gold. Oh yeah, no, that's a hundred percent the plan. That would be fantastic. We don't need the dollar because because the idea is like if if the dollar does hyperinflate, this will be a good way to wrap it around to the very beginning of the episode. If the dollar does hyperinflate, then it's st- it's no longer a good stable reference point, and it needs to be replaced. Yep, I just think that it's going to be uh, a hard money and not a a uh, manipulated money. Well, the the hard money can be a part of the algorithm that produces a stable reference point. But you can probably always get more stable. Like I like I think you get stability from like measuring ev- the value of everything in the world, all assets. You take that into your algorithm, and then because you have all possible data points, you get stability as a result. And and pretty and much Bitcoin, an impossible task. Money would be in- pretty much an impossible task and on top of that like this idea of stability makes no sense because the value of things are not stable the value of things compared to each other and compared to a unit count Mm -hmm. should be changing right but it is is, stability is always like a reference point right stability should be in the unit of account aka a hard cap no no because should oscillate around that account 
if the thing no because again okay that's yes that's exactly right they oscillate around that unit of account but then also the things that are oscillating around the unit of account like when in your case you're talking about bitcoin those things oscillate around each other as well like this is one global dance of fractals of assets dancing around each other changing their reference points to each other all the time and the idea is that a stable reference point is like the finds where the very center of the universe is. Now it's really hard to find the center of a universe. It's a very subjective choice, but you can get pretty fucking close. Like you can get close. And you're never going to get perfect. And like maybe Bitcoin is like this massive black hole like that's relatively close to the center of the universe, but it is not itself the center of the universe. Well, no monetary policy is the center of the universe, and that's why Bitcoin's the black hole right in the middle, because there is no discretionary monetary policy. <laughs> All right, this is, a, this is a good point to wrap it up. Let's just, mm-hmm. I mean, the experiment will go on, right? That's the whole thing, is we get to live through it. The experiments are, are happening on the discretionary front, and the experiments are happening on the non-discretionary front, and we're going to see what works in the real world. Absolutely, and you get and to pr- get, the answer is probably fucking both, and you get great commentary about it on POV Crypto. <laughs> this is true, and so because you get great commentary about it, please go to wherever you listen to your uh, your podcast and give us those five star reviews, so more people can listen to a fractal dance of of universe of stable and unstable assets because that's just good content. I think we're at like ninety four reviews, and the Bitcoin price is at ninety seven thousand. Or sorry, ninety seven hundred. So. Um, <laughs> We've been saying this the whole time. No 10K to 100K reviews. Like, it's on you, listeners. Get your iPhone out. Pull up Apple Podcasts. Christian's been saying this for like a year now, and it's been true for a year straight. Honestly, at this point, it's a curse. So, POV listeners, (laughs) this is on you. Get Bitcoin up to 10K. Let's go. All right, you guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless Date, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? You can find me at POV Crypto Pod. Or sorry, you can find me on Twitter at CK <laughs> underscore Snarks. Uh, hey, dropping drop in some news here. I will continue uh, doing WTF is Up with the Fed in a more active host role and um, bringing on Ansel Lindner, at least for the time being, as a co-host to talk about uh, WTF is happening with the Fed on Bitcoin Magazine podcast. So uh, rolling with two shows just like David. (laughs) Should we start our third podcast? (laughs) Yeah, the third podcast should just be WTF and Bankless against each other. So it's like (laughs) POV squared. The thing is, like, I've always thought it was funny how... Like Bankless is like a really Bitcoiner uh, type of content. There's a lot of Bitcoiner content in there. It's just listen to by a bunch of Ethereum people because it's me and Ryan. Well, you and Ryan bring a lot of the kind of like monetary policy and moneyness matters topic. Mm-hmm. But that's about as far as I would consider it Bitcoiner. You should listen to the most recent episode that we did, the Protocol Sync, because it's all about social scalability. It's like I should have included that when we talked about it, but the whole concept is that dense neutral neutral protocols are dense and they fall to the bottom of a, of the stack. So get the just like Nick Zabo says, get the most ungovernance thing, the most neutral thing. A la Bitcoin. All right, guys, peace.